O come, O come, Emmanuel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm pretty terrible about preparing for Christmas. For years, and I mean years, the house remained bare of any decoration before Christmas time because the weeks before Christmas were all about preparing for finals when I was a graduate student and then grading midterms when I was a teacher and, well, now preparing for Advent and Christmas as a priest. There is too much going on during this season to, well, actually enjoy the season. But this year is different, sort of. We put up some lights a week ago. There's a wreath on our front door. Yes, it was a gift. It came in the mail from L.L. Bean, but still. I have a number of presents bought. And I was bound and determined that we were going to make it to winter lights at Newfields this year. I needed some joy, some Christmas cheer early in the season. Last year, I missed out because, as usual, I waited too long to get tickets, and the darn thing sold out. Can you imagine that many people in our city eager to walk around the grounds of the museum in the cold just because they've put up a million lights. Well, we went this year, and I'll tell you, it was worth it. We strolled the grounds for over an hour toward the Lily Mansion, beautifully decorated for the season, ooing and awing over the lights on the lawn that danced and changed to the various tunes from the Nutcracker. We warmed our hands over the wood fires along the way. We loved seeing children's faces lit with wonder. This was the holiday cheer I needed. I highly commend it to you, accompanied for those over 21 by the delicious adult versions of peppermint hot chocolate and hot cider they have available. There were Christmas trees, poinsettias, wrapped packages, lots of music from Tchaikovsky to top 40 Christmas songs. Children dressed up in red velvet dresses for photos. And I understand that on certain evenings, even Santa arrives to meet the children. But you know what wasn't there? You know who wasn't there? John the Baptist. <laughs> nope. No guy in the wilderness. No camel hair or locust. No calls to repentance. Definitely no talk of sin. In fact, if you think about it, John the Baptist shows up nowhere out there out in the world during this time of year. Check out your Christmas cards. There is literally never a picture of John the Baptist on the front. <laughs> Only Christmas trees and doves, or for the more religious among us, the Holy Family in the manger. Well, okay, that's fine. After all, those are Christmas cards. 
but take a look at your advent calendars too. Open the little doors for your Bible verse or your chocolate each day or get those new adult versions that have a mini bottle of wine or scotch behind each door. Yes, they really make those. As you count down the days until Christmas, you will never find John the Baptist gracing any of your advent calendars even though he is the main character of this season of watching and waiting and preparing. And no wonder, John the Baptist is a downer. He spoils the season, he spoils Christmas, so most people ignore him. Well, most people except us except those of us who come to church in the weeks of Advent. We have to wrestle with John each year on the second and the third Sundays of the season, and that's after we've already heard the apocalyptic warnings of the second coming on the first Sunday. But this, this is the heart of Advent. This is the paradox of the season. In this season, we live in a tension between joy and judgment, hope and warning. Each Sunday, we hear promises of joy coming in the Hebrew scriptures, a looking forward to the time when God will make all right, often a look towards the Messiah, often a promise of release from captivity, as we have in the book of Baruch this morning. There the prophet speaks to Israel in captivity and exile in Babylon and comforts them, promising them that they will be regathered, brought home to Jerusalem by God, who will cover them in God's glory, leading them home in joy, showering them with mercy and righteousness. These are hopes for the future, hopes for what God will do for God's people. And then we hear in the Gospels the warnings of what it means to have God come to us. And we move swiftly from joy and promise to repentance and warning. Each Advent Sunday, our readings follow this pattern, and every one of our collects points to our need to cast away the works of darkness and to forsake our sins so that we might prepare by repenting, by turning again to God, so that we might greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Do we hear that? Can we hear that? We are promised deliverance, joy, righteousness, mercy, glory, but first, first, a little judgment, a little repentance, taking an honest look at our sins. Needless to say, we don't love this. Clearly, this is not going to fly out in the world that is prepared to get their photo taken with Santa. They might consider the coming of a cute baby, sure, but Jesus coming as judge? No thanks. 
We like our Christmas nostalgic, sepia-tinged, Victorian, snow-covered, and tinsel-laden. But Advent is not nostalgic. It does not look back. It looks forward to the time when Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So, the promise of joy and the promise of judgment. Preparing to celebrate the birth of the Messiah and his coming again at the end of the ages. This is the paradox of Advent. This is where we live in this quiet, dark time. And if you think about it, it makes sense. With great joy, we look forward to freedom, to liberation, to a time when mercy and truth will meet, when righteousness and peace will kiss. But those hopes, those realities, they must have a cost. This is the difference between a well-earned vacation taken after a year of hard work and the slothfulness of lying on the couch in your sweats, avoiding your to-do list. This might be hard for us to fathom, for who likes judgment? And certainly now in our culture, any hint of judgment is deemed as mean, as judgmental, since we're all supposed to be perfectly fine, practically perfect, just as we are. This notion that we must be judged before joy can come, that we must repent, reorient ourselves if we want to see God, well, it might be hard for those of us whose lives are somewhat easy, living in a free democratic nation, enough food, a roof over our heads. But imagine, imagine being a Jew living under Roman occupation. Or today, imagine being a Yemeni besieged by war, or someone who is homeless out in the cold, a refugee at the border. And then suddenly, the notion of a God who will come in righteousness to judge sin, conquer injustice, and make all come round right sounds pretty good, even if that judgment includes you. John the Baptist stands on the threshold, provides the link between ancient expectation and the coming of Jesus as a vulnerable infant, as teacher and Messiah, one crucified for love of us, one raised to new life, defeating death and sin. And in Advent, John the Baptist, the one in the wilderness calling us to repent for the forgiveness of sins, stands on the threshold, provides the link between the coming of Jesus as a vulnerable human and his coming again one day in glory. John warns us to repent, and he recalls the words of Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. No wonder we don't put him on our Christmas cards, and it's no surprise that 
our Advent calendars refuse to feature him. He spoils our joy, our hope, our wonder in this season. But wait, wait, look again. Just as we are cast down by his words, just as we fear that we can never repent well enough, cannot turn ourselves round enough, reorient ourselves to God by ourselves, we hear the rest of the passage quoting Isaiah. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked made straight, the rough ways made smooth, the way to the Lord will be prepared. But not by us. The way of the Lord will be prepared, but it's not up to us. We who want lights and tinsel and presents all year round can hardly manage to turn ourselves in the right direction. And so our God prepares the way, makes straight the paths for us so that God can come to us, so that all flesh, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. When we cannot turn, when we will not turn, when we cannot change our ways, God will smooth the path to our hearts and God will find God's way home to us, preparing the way for our salvation so that we may greet with joy one day the coming of Christ, the Redeemer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.